0: Are we going to change our beer segment to our Tide Pod segment, Ocean Mist, this week?
1: (laughs) (laughs) This one also tastes like burning! (laughs) Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we help prospective grad students choose the perfect PhD program. Stay with us.
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 87. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello, Dan. Welcome back, Joshua. Super Bowl week. Big Uh, game week.
1: We do this every time. Um, I actually had to answer a poll to win some sort of uh, gift card from my realtor. Mm -hmm. And the questions, I think I got them all wrong. Who's going to win? uh what is the combined the po- team with the most points yep <laughs> i wrote that in i wrote that in yeah uh the combined total points without going over and what color hoodie somebody called bill belichick is gonna wear
0: yeah he's the coach of the patriots yeah i picked gray Yeah, i would say gray gray's probably a.
1: and then i think it was what color gatorade they're gonna dump
0: on the people's heads orange That's what I chose. Great. I can win. I can win. Uh, Are we going to watch the game together this year? We haven't, we've made no plans. You have not invited me yet. No, we've got to figure that out. Well, that's because we've had too many important things to do, like answer all these listener emails. So many listener emails and so many listener beers to drink. (laughs) That's right. So we have some listener beer and this came to us from one of our listeners and Patreon patrons, Jada. Hi, Jada. So Jada actually went above and beyond. She sent not just one, but two different beers.
1: Yeah, and I'm super excited about this one because these are the same beer with one important difference.
0: So each of these are from the Treehouse Brewing Company in Massachusetts, and they're both double IPAs, both 7.2 percent ABV. We're but
1: catching up from that IPA freefall. <laughs> That's right. Doing double IPAs and triple, then quintuple.
0: But each one features a different hop variety.
1: Yeah, so on my left, also your left, we've got the Bright Double IPA hopped with Citra. And then on the right, we've got the one hopped with Simcoe and Amarillo or Amarillo. I'm not really sure how you're supposed to pronounce that when it's hops.
0: Yeah, not sure. But this is really good for you know, for our science background because we have changed one variable. Let's try the Citra hop first and see see what you think of that. You know, I see why they call this the Citra hop. I think this is this is really useful because... This is the IPA flavor that I prefer.
1: It is a grapefruit. Like, it's got the hint of bitterness, but it's not soapy. It's not piney. And it is... I I think it's really good. I think this is a great uh, great IPA. I'm with you.
0: Yeah, it is obvious why they call this the Citra Hop. Because lots of citrus. I'm getting some some tangerine, some uh, orange rind. Um, Delicious. Okay, so let's just stop there and not even taste the second one. (laughs) All right, let's do our our B comparison here. Mm, Okay, so here... Wow, this is really interesting. This this brings up a little more of that dank characteristic of hops.
1: I'm trying to place the flavors though. This this one, um, they start out a little bit similar, but but I was missing the sort of tangerine flavor you mentioned. But then that bitterness kind of melts back over the back of your tongue.
0: Yeah, this is this definitely has more bitter character. Still a little bit of of brightness of citrus, but definitely. Um, I mean, but d- still dank is the only Yeah, uh, but still to uh, me the only way i can
1: describe it still very smooth though this was not um this is not one of those beers that is so hopped that it's almost undrinkable in you know like with the, you couldn't have uh um, certain ipas with dinner because it would just be too overwhelming this one is a little bit smoother but i don't think it quite matches up to the citra citra is my favorite
0: yeah that's absolutely true and and my my descriptor is not to infer that I do not like this beer, but sort of in the, in the way that I like a blue cheese, I would say. Uh, this beer is a little more of that. Either way, both two really quality beers. And Dan, we actually had Jada send us some Treehouse beer months ago. Yeah,
1: apparently you have to stand in line out in a field to get it. So we're super uh, pleased and impressed, and uh, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, and if you're in the, the Boston, Massachusetts area go try to find uh, Treehouse Brewing. It's uh, worth your time. Absolutely. Josh, I want to remind
1: everybody, we have a Patreon live chat coming up on February 6th. And we made the classic uh, mistake where we didn't consider the fact that some people were in different time zones, particularly our European patrons. And so we initially set that for 9 p.m. Apparently, that's super late in certain parts of the world. And so uh, we sent out a poll to all of our patrons to find out what a good time would be! So, if you are a patron right now, you should have that poll in your inbox. Please go on there and let us know when you can chat.
0: And I was, I thought it was really cool, though. You know, when we when we survey all of our our patrons, uh, we really have people from all over the world. We have patrons from here in the states, Europe, and Australia. I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, remind everybody why we are chatting. Yeah. So the reason we're chatting is Dan and I are planning out 2018 and what we'd like to cover on the show this year. And we thought, rather than us having our little echo chamber talking about what we think we should talk about, it would all be board games <laughs> if Joss had a choice. <laughs> we we thought we could ask our listeners, and specifically um, our our Patreon patrons, who who clearly are. are very supportive and invested in the show uh, we thought that we'd give them a chance to let us know directly what they'd like to hear so if you'd like to jump in on that there's still time you can become a patron before or after february 6th but if you get in before february 6th you can jump in on our first patreon chat and this is something that that i hope will be something we can do regularly throughout the year yeah we're looking forward to it let's get on to science in the news
1: So so speaking of Jada, uh, she's all over this show. Yes, she is. Uh, last week, Josh, you'll remember that in Science in the News, we learned about some rule changes in Switzerland that ban the boiling of live lobsters. Do you remember that uh, disgusting discussion?
0: How could I forget?
1: Yeah. So I was reading some notes from the uh, Lobster Institute as part of that show. And the Lobster Institute said, hey, guys, don't worry about it. Lobsters are just like insects and they don't have brains, so they don't feel pain. Uh, And turns out that Jada actually works on fly brains as part of her work. So she wrote, you might have already gotten this feedback, but just in case... Insects do have brains. The fruit fly has over 100,000 neurons in its nervous system and it actually has a substantial and somewhat complex brain slash central nervous system. I'm not going to lie. I was actually kind of surprised the first time I dissected one and realized how substantial it all actually was. Not only do they have tons of neurons that are intricately coordinated into sophisticated circuitry, but they even have lots of different glial subtypes incorporated in there to control some of that circuitry too. As a fly glial biologist, who just got my own lab, I need to promote fly brain and glial awareness. And then she shared a link with us where you can go do a 3D exploration of a fly brain on your own. So uh, sorry for the fake news, everybody. Flies do have brains. And uh, whether you consider ganglia brains in a lobster or not, I think. uh, We did say that, that, or the Swiss said you have to mechanically destroy the brain. So whatever the Lobster Institute feels, uh, they have a difference of opinion from the Swiss government.
0: Yeah, I would say if you have any issues, don't take it up with us, but take it up with the, the main Lobster Institute. Yep. And I did find out, uh, you know, they said that
1: you could shock the lobsters or electrocute them. There is a device for this about the size and shape of a microwave, and it is called the Crestace Dun. Yeah, that's actually what it's called. And it actually gives them a two to five amp electrical charge and kills the animal in fractions of
0: a second. So. So click through our Amazon link. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> for everyone you buy. Hey, I just wanted a little bit of an aside, to say congrats to Jada on on getting a faculty job and getting her own lab. Cheers. Yeah, that's awesome. You all might remember Jada. We interviewed her. She was one of our postdocs on our postdoc uh Straight Talk and Where Are They Now episode. So good for Jada. Awesome. Now on to
1: this week's Science in the News. Drawn from today's headlines, Josh. Are you familiar with
0: uh, the YouTube? Yes. uh, My kids have gotten to an age where now they have been exposed to YouTube and they ask us constantly for access to YouTube.
1: Okay. So I'm glad I'm here today to explain to you the, the newest danger. You're probably familiar with YouTube challenges like the ice bucket challenge where you film yourself dumping ice on your head. Have you heard of any of the other ones, like the cinnamon challenge? And I don't
0: know the cinnamon. I know the, I know the gallon challenge.
1: Okay, so the gallon challenge, you have to drink a gallon of milk in, in an hour. Yeah. yeah, and you film yourself, and it's disgusting, and people upvote you. There is apparently a new one, or relatively new, over the last few months and years, called the Tide Pod Challenge.
0: Now, I've heard of this. Okay, great. And I'm actually pretty excited. I saw this heading that you typed up on the show notes. And I I tend to be pretty up on the things that are going on around the internet. You're way more in touch with the social medias than I am. So I have been aware that there's this Tide Pod thing that's happening that people or teenagers are somehow ingesting or otherwise utilizing Tide Pods in ways they were not intended. But I have to admit, I have no idea what's going on with this. So I'm pretty eager to learn about This phenomenon. I'll take
1: one step back because people may not know what a Tide pod is. Back in the day, if you wanted to wash your laundry, you would pour a liquid into the washing machine. Uh, But then five or six years ago, I think, maybe a little longer, Tide came out with these, uh, I guess it's a super concentrated form of the detergent in a little dissolvable plastic wrapping. So it looks like, I don't know if you've seen one or if you've ever used them, but it looks like a, a brightly colored kind of orange and blue liquid capsule thing have you seen these online
0: yeah i have seen these i've seen them in the store i, I don't use these because they're super expensive comparatively. yeah yeah
1: right so i guess for the convenience of not pouring detergent into a cup you can pop this in the washing machine and soon after they came out there were some calls and some concern that they looked too much like candy so little kids would see these mistake them for candy and, and the worry was that the kids would eat them. And in fact, uh, during the past five years, the poison control centers have received well over 50,000 calls relating to these liquid laundry packet exposures. And, and most of those are children under the age of five. So it really is a, a kind of a dangerous thing to have in the house if you have little kids around.
0: Yeah, wow, I
1: could see that. But that is not what we're talking about today. That's its own problem. So with the poison control centers having records of these calls, uh, they know that they handled 39 cases of people intentionally ingesting laundry detergent in 2016, Uh, among people aged 13 to 19. They had 53 cases in 2017. And just in the first two weeks of this year alone, they've had another 39. So small numbers, I suppose, but these are teenagers who are intentionally eating Tide Pods. And the challenge is, you post a video of yourself on YouTube biting into one of these little plastic packets of Concentrated laundry detergent
0: Hmm You in Josh <laughs> um, Are we Are we going to Change our Beer segment To our Tide pod segment <laughs> Ocean mist This week
1: <laughs> We could do It an tastes A-B like t- burning <laughs> <laughs> has a Soapy off. character This one also tastes like burning.
0: (laughs) It's really great foam on the (laughs) ocean breeze. Uh, Oh, why uh, why people? Yeah, why is sort of the question I have. I think it's... So so is there some kind of, you know, Dan, I remember in our youth and even before that, you know, there were the people sniffing the glue and huffing the chemicals, blah, 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 and the household cleaners. Is there some sort of of high that people are getting off of this or is it just to impress friends? No,
1: absolutely no benefit whatsoever from it um it is purely from my understanding is purely a a way to get other people to look at you and to upvote your video i don't think there's any
0: there's no positive outcome of this whatsoever so do you mean if i were to ingest a tide Pod on the air it might up our listens and downloads Uh, it could among the 13 to 19 year old set which i don't think is our core demographic We'll post a Patreon poll. If you
1: would like, would you rather Josh or Dan ingest <laughs> a Tide well, Pod? <laughs> the only reason this this is going to elevate to science in the news is because I wanted to explore the science of what is inside these capsules and then what's going to happen to you from a medical perspective if you choose to take this choice. Oh, yeah. I
0: should probably learn that before I agree to anything.
1: Okay. So so what's inside, Josh? Uh, the major components that make up most of it are anionic and non-ionic surfactants so like d- soaps detergent soaps yep uh, it's also got some ethoxylated polyethylene uh, polyamine and enzymes so i checked out the material safety data sheet for tide pods spring meadow in case you wanted a, a certain flavor and uh about 15 it says 15 to 40 percent now i have no idea why the range would be that big but was made up of two amino ethanol benzene sulfonic acid, which is one of these surfactants. That sounds bad. Yeah. Do you remember in lab when you had to mix up the SDS and you and you had the bottle of, uh, I guess, it's sodium dodecyl sulfate or whatever? It's the detergent, but it's in a powder form. You wear like a mask. Yeah, you wear a mask because the day you didn't wear a mask, I don't know if you've ever done this, it just goes into your lungs and sticks. I mean, it's a horrible. You, you cough immediately when you breathe in this dust. So you can imagine um, taking a bite out of this not so. So it's liquid form, but but uh, the LD fifty listed is one kilogram or one gram per kilogram. You know, so it's got it's got those components. It's got some ethoxylated alcohols that make up another ten to thirty percent, also with an LD fifty of one gram per kilogram. So um, a tide pod itself is about thirty grams. So a toddler or a small child who is thirty kilograms uh, could certainly be killed by if they were able to actually ingest this. Yeah. Wow. So so these things are. You'd have to down two or three, you know, you'd have to work on it to get enough. So, th- so these things are pretty big. Are, are kids swallowing them? Are they biting into them? Or I haven't watched any, you know, I've, I've seen a little bit of one video and the person bites into it. And because they're in this kind of plastic wrapping, as they bite into it, this liquid kind of pops out. And so the first effect is you can get uh, these concentrated detergents into your eyes these are very alkaline and will cause burning um, of any mucous membrane. so in your mouth in your eyes in your nose uh, not awesome and your body's reaction to this is to try and get it out right you're going to salivate a lot you'll probably vomit almost immediately uh, which i think is good so it'd be pretty tough to actually ingest enough of this to get a lethal dosage
0: but nobody's really trying that yeah (laughs) You're just dumbstruck. Sorry about this. Well, I'm, just, I'm just blown away that this is a thing. Well, actually, you know I'm not. I guess I'm not surprised. So so has, has there been a response from from Tide?
1: Yeah, they say don't do it, um, but they haven't changed the way it looks. And, you know, particularly with this 13 to 19-year-old uh, set that are doing it on YouTube for clicks, I don't think telling them not to do it is going to stop it. I think it would probably make it do it more. Um, so imagine that you swallow it, Uh, It burns all the way down, obviously, and uh, you'll definitely have some gastrointestinal distress. It can actually scar the lining of your esophagus and cause esophageal strictures, which is a tightening of the esophagus from that scar tissue, so later you can get food stuck and choke on it. Very unlikely, because you're probably going to vomit immediately, which will probably send the detergent up your nose. And then the real danger, and the way that people go to the hospital and can die from it, is because as you vomit, you also will choke and cough, and you'll inhale some of it. And once it gets into your lungs, it will cause a lot of fluid buildup. It can cause, a lot, you know, a lot of coughing and wheezing and send you into respiratory distress. And over the long term, if that fluid buildup continues, it can actually kill you. So,
0: if... Oh, go ahead. Do you needed to say something? Uh, yeah, I was just imagining, you know, how con- this concentrated detergent and when it gets into the sort of your saliva or other mucuses, that's just going to cause bubbles and... Yeah, now as you try to breathe in to take that next breath. I mean, You know, you've tried to like, yeah. you know, you have like even concentrated dish soap and you try to rinse it, right? Especially yeah, with like right. warmer water and you just can't get rid of it, you know, even if you have a steady flow of water. I can just imagine this being inside of your mucous membranes. You're, you're and, not going to let me do science in the news anymore. Every time I do it, I bring
1: <laughs> some kind of terrible story of pain and suffering. Yeah, this gets a little uh, more macabre every week. Yeah, well, we'll keep going. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the end of that. The point is don't eat it. If you, see, uh, if you find a child that has eaten one, you're not supposed to induce vomiting. Rinse their mouth out, give them water or milk, and then you know, immediately call poison control to get help. YouTube has moved to take down these videos because they violate the terms of service. You're not supposed to post videos of people harming themselves or others. And so hopefully this will taper off. But it's it's one of a long line of really dumb internet jokes or pranks. Anyways, internet, stop. Just stop it. <laughs> it's a public service,
0: science in the news. Yeah. Well, Dan... <laughs> Thanks for nothing. Th- th- thanks for that. Uh, I actually do thank you for informing me about this Tide Pod thing that I keep. But I'm really disappointed keep because... Keep your kids away from the YouTube. I mean, I mean, the fact that I feel like I've just been swamped with so many different things and there's so many things to keep up with in the news. The fact that this Tide Pod thing has risen to the level where I've noticed it. I think my disappointment is that there's not there's not some benefits. It's really just stupidity, right? Or I, I guess so I was right. hoping at least there was some positive effect perceived or real that people were getting but doesn't minty fresh breath <laughs> you know it made me think arbor uh, mist flavored breath glad we didn't have these when i was a kid because uh i remember that was back in the day of washing your mouth out with soap if you uh <laughs> said a bad word right yeah ralphie maybe that's how this started uh, a couple of moms shoved a tide pod in junior's <laughs> junior's mouth for <was> saying no <laughs> <right>? <laughs>
1: No telling. Anyways, keep your kids off the internet. That's my advice. All right.
0: Uh, Let's move on to our topic, Dan. All right. So, I alluded to the fact that we have received a number of listener emails, and we thought we could just go through some of these um, over the next few episodes. Uh, But one thing we noticed, probably not surprisingly, given the time of year, is some inquiries about how to choose a PhD program. It's that season. We talked a little bit about having a competitive application a few episodes ago. Uh, But right now, I know a lot of students are in the process of interviewing for PhD programs. And along with that will hopefully come acceptances to PhD programs. And then how do you choose where to go?
1: Yeah, so our first letter, very short and sweet from Michaela, says, Hello, what factors would you consider important when choosing a PhD program? That seems straightforward enough, although I know that that question is full of nuance.
0: Yeah, so let's unpack this. What are some things that you should consider when you're trying to choose the PhD program to enter? So I think it's one thing to decide you want to pursue a PhD, and that's something I think we have unpacked quite a bit on the show before, is do and, you want to go in the first place?
1: And we'll continue to do so, I think. it. It is. There's a lot to say
0: about choosing that path for your life. Yeah. But but once you've made that decision, then there's a lot that goes into the the next important decision of where to where to actually do that. And the first thing I guess I will say is first and foremost, being in a PhD program is very different than a lot of more vocational programs like like medical school or dental school or pharmacy school where you're basically, you know, you're learning to do a certain thing. Graduate school is so varied from student to student. Uh, even even with among students in the exact same program, um, it's a very individualistic experience depending on the lab you join and the project you end up working on. So since primarily what you're going to be doing is research, I think the first thing is it's very critical to make sure that there's research you're actually interested in doing at the university you ultimately choose.
1: Yeah, I want to just respond one second to the the first statement you made, which is it because it's so individual. And what I thought of is we went to the same place And we knew 100 different students, let's say. Some of those had an amazing experience, and some of those had a terrible experience. And it's not because we all came into a different program or had a different set of classes, although we did have some differences. That's never where it it is made or broken. It, It always comes down to the individual research lab. And so it's hard to give a blanket statement. You should go to Oxford because that's going to be great for some people and terrible for others. And so there's this really individualized piece, and I think you're going to unpack that now.
0: Yeah, and and what I would say first is really do your research on the faculty that are at the university and specifically the faculty that are available to you as thesis advisors.
1: Now, Uh, what would make them unavailable? Is there a way to know?
0: Well, so this would be a good question to ask the program you're interested in before you choose. So... These days with the internet, it's very easy to go online and look up faculty and read a little bit about what they do. But you want to make sure that those faculty that you're actually reading about that are sounding really cool to you are faculty that are actually affiliated with the PhD program you want to join. Because what you wouldn't want to happen is to join such and such program and realize, oh, the faculty I really thought were cool are in a different program or different department. And there aren't necessarily mechanisms in place for you to do your PhD in the department you got into with those faculty.
1: Yeah, I remember having the experience where I read about really cool research in the in the book of faculty, which you know they hand out or you can find online typically, and, and it'll list the types of research everybody's doing, the papers they published. And I remember seeing some really engaging, cool stuff. And upon closer inspection or finally meeting these people, you find out, well, they're really close to retiring or closing down their lab. So all the cool stuff you read about maybe happened 15 years ago, and it was groundbreaking at the time, but they're just not taking new students. Or maybe their lab is totally full because they've you know, they've been so popular for so long that it's just full. I think some of these things you're not going to know from reading it. You're going to have to go talk to them, email them,
0: ask. Absolutely. And, and I think that's why there needs to be several faculty at the university doing things that you actually want to do. And and the reason I say several is unless unless you enter a program where you have to select an advisor before you go, and I think there still are some programs like that, um, but a lot our programs now structured where you're going to do rotations through different labs. So you want to be careful about choosing a school where maybe there's only one person you really want to work with. Um, I actually advised a student a couple years ago, um, who was in this post program that I that I ran, and she ended up choosing a certain university, primarily because there was one faculty member she was really interested in working with. So she chose that institution, and she showed up in August at that place, scheduled a meeting with this faculty member, only to find out that he had accepted a job at a different university and was moving his lab three months later.
1: Oh, no, and that's he will move his existing students with him potentially but not the newcomer yeah he clearly wasn't taking
0: new students from the university he was moving away from and she was completely distraught as you can imagine
1: Oh, i mean she she picked up her life to go to this place i assume
0: yeah and and so you don't want to be in that situation and and you know the other thing too there's more and we've talked about this before dan but there's a lot more to choosing a thesis lab than research that sounds really cool Let's say you read about some research. Maybe you even meet someone on an interview and, and think like, wow, that science sounds really awesome. That's what I want to do. Then you spend a few weeks in their lab and realize such and such is a jerk or so and so, you know, the lab environment isn't really a good fit for me after all. You want to have other options that are, that are also somewhat interesting to you. So you're not putting all your eggs in, in one basket because um, that lab selection is so important. You don't want to leave it up to just one potential opportunity. So that's really the first thing. Uh, Make sure you're choosing a place where there are a variety of faculty doing research that you think is cool.
1: Is it worth considering a place where there is a diversity of work going on? So when I went to grad school, I thought I was going to study microbiology, and I didn't end up studying microbiology because I got exposed to other science that was really cool to me. So if you if you have a choice, if there's a balance, and you can say, "I want to go somewhere with more diverse research topics versus one that is more specifically in my field," is there a way to choose
0: that, or do you think some people are going to do better at that very well, specified? Well, you know, that could factor into some people's decisions. So there are likely some students out there who know have a pretty narrow view of what they want to do. Maybe they know I really want to do neuroscience. Uh, then there might be other other students, probably more like we were, Dan, who had a more more broad view of things we might want to try out before we choose a lab. And that's probably why we chose the program we did, which was an umbrella program that allowed us to sample from faculty in lots of different departments. And so maybe that's an option you have is going directly into a specific department versus programs that are much more broad in the faculty available to you. And and that's going to be different for different people, depending on, I guess, how focused you are at the time that you're entering into graduate school. So this
1: first point, make sure there's research that you're interested in, seems like the most important thing and also the one that's hardest to control to me. You know, some of the other things we'll talk about in this episode, uh, I feel like you can get a sense for and and your sense by visiting this place and, and by meeting these people will, will be right spot on. But I feel like research you'll be interested in there are so many outside factors this faculty member moves away or this person has cool research but they're a terrible human being and you don't want to work for them Um, that's a big commitment to choose a program and have that much uncertainty
0: but does it work out for most people yeah i think so but again i think that's why you want to choose a place that there's a lot of research going on that you potentially could see yourself doing. Plan B, C, D, E, and F. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I guess the the bottom line is what I would caution you from doing is to choose a PhD program solely because there's one person you want to work with. Unless you have a, a longstanding... Uh, relationship or you've gotten to interact with that person on a more ongoing basis and have had detailed conversations about them taking you into their lab. And Here you, is the specific project you will do. Here is where the grant funding will come from. And you and you know them and you have, have reason to believe it'll be a good training experience. Um, otherwise, I think it would be a potential pitfall to go just for one person.
1: So that might work for somebody who maybe takes a job as a lab technician for two years before applying to grad school. Maybe you apply to the program uh, where you're working in that lab, and maybe you know the faculty already, so that might be an easier way to know what's coming.
0: Yeah, and you think, hey, I can just keep cranking with this project and be done in the next three or four years. Yeah, that that would be a specific situation, uh, but this this is all general advice, I think. So, th- so the second thing is because uh, the research, you know, the good research fit, I think is. Is paramount. That has to be there. You wouldn't want to choose a program that doesn't have overlapping research fit to what you think you want to do. But that's not the only thing. And so, so the next thing I'll say is, is make sure you go to a place that you could be have happy living for the next five or so years. There's a story from from when I interviewed at a certain school that will remain nameless, Duke. (laughs) <laughs> you can bleep that out later. <laughs> Cursing on the show. <laughs> um, so anyway, I don't know why this this one interview stood out to me, but I was meeting with a faculty member, and and we were. This was, I think, the third interview I had been on, and I had some acceptances at that time. And so he was talking to me a little bit about his opinion on how you should make a choice, um, how, or how you should choose a, a graduate school. And he said, first and foremost, you should choose. A place that you would be happy to live and i thought well that's really good advice you know and, and he said and secondly you should go to the best school possible as long as it's a place you would be happy living of course i think what he meant was uh, there could not be a school better than the one he was at <laughs> makes um, sense but but that stuck with me the the importance of making of not overlooking the fact that besides doing school and working in lab you're also going to have a life you're going to be actually living and making friends and riding the bus or driving around and going to the grocery store in this location uh, for a fairly significant period of time. And, and so that's something I think all students should think a little bit about. Like, would I be happy living in a big city or would I be happy not living in a big city or...
1: Yeah, do you want to have a car or do you prefer public transportation? Do you hate the snow or do you have allergies to things that live in the South? I mean, there there are a thousand little... Uh, concerns and thoughts about a location. Is the housing going to be affordable? Are you going to go into debt by trying to live in this place? But all of them build up to you're either contented and happy in the time you're spending outside of lab. Because all labs kind of are the same inside, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true. there are some nicer ones and some less nice ones. But it's the time you spend outside of the lab that I think makes up your experience of grad school in it, as much as being in the lab does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, now I will say, I'll, I'll say that with a caveat. I would say that you should consider pushing your comfort zone a little bit with respect to location. So, you know, I advise a lot of students who are in the process of applying to PhD programs. And this is something a lot of students put in the forefront of their mind is, you know, I could never live on the West Coast or I hate the snow. I don't want to be somewhere that it's cold. But it is important to realize that one nice thing about graduate school is it is a temporary step, as we talked about last week. So it can also be an opportunity to get outside your comfort zone a little bit and try out a new place that you haven't lived before for a very finite period of time. And so I always tell students, you can always say no to a program once you're accepted. You're going to interview, you're going to go visit that place. But if you don't apply, you're never going to have the chance to potentially say yes or no. So... I think at the application stage, students should really cast a wider net. Go visit a place. Um, And one thing I've seen happen time and time again, Dan, is students I advise who are applying to programs, you know, in the fall, they'll say things like, well, I definitely want to stay on the East Coast or I definitely want to get back to the West Coast. And it's so funny how often once they apply and they go on these interviews, they do exactly the opposite. They go to the place they originally had said, I never want to live there. Because then we have these preconceived notions about places that we haven't been before. So then we go visit, and we're like, wow, this is actually really neat. I might want to try this out. I keep moving further south. Every time I move, I move further south. So yeah, so I think science training can be a good time to experience some new places. But also, you know, it's important to be honest with yourself and what you're willing to compromise on, what you're not. And some people do have partner obligations or family obligations, and that's a very real consideration too, and that's going to weigh differently for different people. Awesome. Uh, Tell us about the third consideration. Yeah, so, so the third thing, beyond the research and beyond the location... Is you know you did say Dan sometimes when it comes down to it um, labs are kind of the same from place to place and that could be true and you know there are really great faculty at a lot of different places and there's probably pretty crummy faculty at a lot of different places um, but beyond that I would I would tell students to think about what opportunities are there outside of the lab to explore careers and gain professional development and I think that's going to be variable from program to program so
1: having known you for a long time and known the role that you play, uh, in helping students make these transitions into graduate school. I didn't realize this because we came up through the same program, but they, there is a lot of diversity in terms of the amount of support you're going to get in things like careers that aren't faculty positions. And if I want to be a science writer, or if I want to, uh, explore something with industry versus going into academia, I feel like we, we had a lot of exposure to that. We had, uh, faculty that supported it. We had clubs, we had speaking groups. Um, but but what I've heard is that's not true everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's not true everywhere. And so, you know, I think that's an important thing to have available f- for you to experience during grad school is not just, you know, first and foremost, you want to learn to be a scientist in graduate school. Um, however, when you get to the end, it is hopefully a transition step into some career or at least some next step of your career. So ideally, you would be in a place where you're exposed to at least enough information about what careers are available to you that you would have at least somewhat good idea what that next step is going to be and that you would have had the opportunities to build some skills to actually do that um, beyond just your pipetting ability in the lab. How do you
1: find out if these things are available at the places you're applying?
0: Yeah, I mean, one, you can ask. So if you go on interviews in person, that is a very important and fair question to ask. There will be a time when they say, ask us questions about our program. Ask them what opportunities are available for grad students to learn about careers or to get professional development. The right answer would be they would list off all of these things that they provide. Talk to the graduate students, um, see if that's something they're doing. Or maybe they say, who has time for that? We're in the lab all the time. Well... <laughs> That might be informative. So yeah, I think you just ask. Yeah, I was wondering if that was going to put some kind of stigma on
1: you for being the person who's asking about maybe an industry job, or I I really want to do science writing after this. But I guess if it's a a stigma and they view it that way, it's not the right place for you.
0: Yeah, and and that is how I would certainly answer that question. You know, if, if the reality is your goal is to go to industry and you ask a potential PhD program what opportunities are available to prepare you for that. And they make you feel like an elephant with two heads, then you're right, that is not the program for you. You know, I think those are the main things. I'm gonna leave it there. There's a few minor things. Um, some programs will guarantee your funding for the entire time you're a student, others will require you to write and receive a fellowship. Um, Those are some things you might want to ask about. Is your support guaranteed um, or is it contingent upon you obtaining your own funding? That can be important to know. Um, What is the culture there? Maybe you are from a people group that is underrepresented and so you would like to have some community. Um, That's certainly something you might inquire about. Maybe you have a family and you want to know. Uh, sort of what the culture is like for people with families, if there's if there's support and understanding for that, something specific about your life situation you should ask about. And and those can be really good questions to ask current graduate students that hopefully you'll have time to interact with when you go do an interview.
1: Well, that's helpful. We've, we've got another email in the hopper here, and I want to read it because I think it um, adds some nuance and, and some additional questions to this. So this one comes from Katie, who actually is studying in England. So I'm fairly new to listening to your podcast, but I love it. I thought I'd reach out as I'm at the point where I need to make a tough decision and would like some help. The history, I graduated from a tiny university in Wales in 2014. I wasn't too keen on doing a master's PhD straight away as I was done with studying. I went into a few industry jobs as a lab tech, etc., but soon realized with the current job market being saturated with master's PhD people that I'd have to do one to progress. Plus the jobs I had sucked. My job now is great. I work in a genetics lab, and have my own small projects, but again, without a PhD, I can't progress. Anyway, I've applied to a few PhDs over the years, mainly prestigious ones at large universities and research institutes that allow these first-year rotations, but I haven't even gotten any interviews, and with so many people applying, feedback is denied. My tough decision comes after my undergraduate project supervisor, who I have been asking for references, asked me if I would like to do a PhD with him. Collaborating with a hospital and, if all goes well, potential commercial product collaboration. The project sounds great, and I enjoyed working with him, and he would like to work with me. However, it is a long way from where I was considering. About a five to six hour drive, which is in the UK, that is a lot. I'm nicely settled here with a lovely partner. My two options are, one, wait for a closer PhD to come up that I like and that I get accepted to, but with my track record, could be never. Or two, take the PhD and wonder if I could have gotten into a more prestigious university. I'm worried that I'm drawn to the small university because it's the easy option, not because it's the best option. Maybe this is one of those moments where a rogue opportunity comes along and changes your career for the better. But until I'm out the other end, I won't know. And that
0: was from Katie. Please help. All right, Katie, thanks for, for writing in. So, yeah, so it sounds like, if, if I'm understanding this right, Dan, um, so Katie has applied to some Ph.D. programs that, that she describes as, as prestigious, but unfortunately hasn't gotten any bites yet with that. Uh, but she has this. She has this opportunity to come work and do a PhD with her undergraduate advisor. The project sounds cool. Maybe the school is a little smaller or isn't uh, doesn't quite have the name recognition as some of the others she was applying to. Yeah. Uh, so if I'm reading back through your initial
1: list, uh, make sure there's research you're interested in. It sounds like that one project she's interested in, and it sounds like she would have a position there. But if something should turn south, it doesn't sound like there'd be a lot of other opportunities and then make sure you're happy living there. She just said that her partner and and her life are in this place that's five to six hours from where the small university is. So it's not the ideal place for her, obviously.
0: Yeah. So I guess like a lot of things in life, it's sort of <laughs> in between, right? It's uh there's not an easy answer to this. You know, I want to address uh, I want to address a couple parts of this email though. Um, one, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, prestige of a program and and whether that's important. Um, you might notice that's not something that I mentioned in in my list. And you know, one thing I noticed when I went through graduate school and in, in my postdoc, you know, we would have a lot of of seminar speakers come through from lots of universities. You probably experienced the same thing. And I realized they don't all. You know, you know how at the beginning usually a faculty member will introduce them and say where they went to school, where they did their postdoc, and and I realized you know they didn't all go to Harvard and they didn't all go to Stanford. There's really good science going on a lot of places, and and it's not just the big prestigious universities that are are producing all the successful people. Um, which is not to say you know going you shouldn't go to one of those universities if you have the chance. Uh, I guess I'm just saying. That There's good science happening at a lot of different places, and there's really, really interesting and capable people um, to work with. I actually talked to a faculty member uh, last year who was was describing a smaller PhD program that she went to, and she was saying, you know, at the time, that was such a better choice for her than a more sort of competitive, fast-paced PhD environment because she wasn't ready for that and probably wouldn't have been as successful had she gone to that more competitive university at the time. Um, but going somewhere a little smaller, a little more supportive, helped her build the confidence and get the training she needed to then transition to a really competitive postdoc. And ultimately now she's a faculty member. So, so that's one way to think about it is, you know, graduate school is not always the end of your training. But think about, is this a place that I'm going to be able to learn to become a scientist really well?
1: Yeah. I, I want to echo that because I think you're right. Prestige sounds more important than it probably is, but I do think there's a spectrum here. So for me who works outside of the lab now, I'd never introduce myself as Daniel Arniman PhD, Cell and Molecular Physiology at UNC Chapel Hill, right? It doesn't matter where I went. It doesn't even matter what my degree is in most of the time. I put that those three little letters on my LinkedIn profile or on my resume or on my business card. And for most people, they just make some assumptions about you and about what your background is. So I think in the business world, you know, if I, if I unspooled cell and molecular physiology, every time somebody asked their eyes just glaze over and they just don't care. I think on that end of the spectrum, it really doesn't matter. The degree is the degree and, uh, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of it. And it sounds like that's what she wants to do. She, she is working on something that has an industry focus or that has an industry jumping off point. Um, but you know, we we covered that study a few years ago about the number of faculty coming out of just a handful of labs or the amount of grant funding going to just a handful of labs and then the number of postdocs that come out of those labs go on to faculty positions at these high level universities. So I think it really depends on what your goal is. If you want to be a professor at Harvard, you should probably go to one of these prestigious schools i think but you know about, i i would lo- i would like to be wrong i'm 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 guessing here i'm, well, I'm positing so, this so i
0: think i think you're totally right dan i think thinking about what your goals are could be important here you know but i'll say this you know if your goal is is a prestigious academic position and again this you should is have gone to a better preschool <laughs> I mean, again, there could be differences between the UK and the United States, but at least in the United States, where you do your postdoc has a lot more bearing on on being competitive for these faculty jobs than where you did your graduate work, typically. Is there any barrier to getting a good postdoc?
1: Do people from Harvard get a better postdoc than people that went to university of middle of nowhere?
0: You know, not necessarily. I think being productive is the more important thing. So I, th- I, think, I think that's why it's important to go somewhere as a graduate student that you feel like sets you up the best to be productive and, and so if you burn out at MIT that's not good for you. That's not going to be your best route to a faculty position. Um, because a lot of you know a lot of fa- a lot of postdoc positions, they're going to be looking at did you publish papers? They're going to be calling your advisor wherever he or she is from and saying, oh what kind of student were you? So very few people are transitioning directly from graduate school into faculty jobs anyway. Now if your interest is is more clinical or industry well, it sounds like this position has some of that built in. It is a little more of a known quantity since you've worked with the person before. That was one thing we talked about as a caveat um, earlier. So, you know, the fact that you seem really interested in the project you'd be working on, that sounds very positive to me. Now, the one thing I don't know a lot about, you mentioned you have a partner in this other town and this small university might be a little farther away from your life. That's something uh, that's worth considering how important that is. Five or six hours is a long way, although there's a train system, right? Is that, Does that help? Yeah, probably a lot better than here. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I'm trying to think through this if it were me, because it's sort of like a the bird in hand situation where, you know, you've applied to PhD programs in the past and uh, unfortunately haven't had much luck. And here you have this opportunity that's presented itself that's not necessarily a bad opportunity. You know, I'm trying to think if you if you were to not take it, you know, I guess you could continue to try to strengthen your application. But really the way you would want to do that is is to keep doing research, which it sounds like you're doing. I, so maybe it depends on how, how much you're willing to put off um, your PhD. If you're willing to try again next year, continue to get a little more experience in your current job, um, and then make a decision. Maybe this uh, faculty member at the small university would be willing to accept you next year as much as they are now. Or maybe you feel like, you know what, I'm ready to move on with my training and get on with my life. Um, here's an opportunity I have. I'm a little encouraged by the fact that it sounds you sound excited about it besides the fact it's at um, a certain university that you've already been at. I'd be interested to know if this same p i was at a prestigious university, would you be super excited about it? If you just move the person and and the lab to a different place, how would you feel about it? And if the answer is well, that'd be amazing. The only thing holding me back is the the university where it's located. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's not so important. I do want to say one thing that's a little bit of an aside, but but she mentioned in her email, and this frustrates me a little bit. In, In some ways, she's trying to make this decision based on um, some unknown future thing that could or could not happen. You know, if she she hasn't gotten into grad school, would she get in in the future? But the fact she's been unable to get any feedback on why she wasn't able to get in and how she could strengthen her application. As somebody who's involved in admissions, I'm really frustrated on her behalf that she's in the dark about this and trying to make some decision Um, without all the information. And so, you know, one thing I wonder is if you could be a little more aggressive about trying to contact someone in admissions at the other places you applied to get a little honest feedback about why you didn't get in. And, you know, I wonder if you could be, you know, try giving phone calls, sending emails and saying, hey, I'm considering applying again in in the future. I'd like some honest feedback on where my application fell short that kept me from getting in this time around.
1: Yeah, that could be the real decision maker. If it's something that you can't fix, then maybe this small university is the exact right way to go. If it's something that's really trivial and you could fix immediately and you can get in next year, obviously it changes. The, and it's a lack of information, like you're saying. Yeah,
0: yeah, because that would that would change all the metrics. You know, if it was, you know, you were right on the fence. If you just work in your current job, get another year of experience, you're going to be a shoe in. Well, that's one thing versus. Yeah, you know, really, you are not exactly what we're looking for now or next year. Well, now you've got this opportunity to really build your resume during your PhD at this other place, and then you're competitive for these really great postdoctoral positions later on. But without that key information from the admissions side of these universities you were targeting, I think it's hard for you to make that decision. So uh, that's maybe one piece of advice I would give is really go back in and try to be a little more aggressive about procuring some polite some, but aggressive. Yeah, and, and yeah. You know, and I'm sorry you're having that experience because that's really uh, that's really frustrating and unfortunate that you're you're not able to get that feedback. One piece of advice though is sometimes I do know that admissions committees are really swamped this time of year while they're in the middle of the admissions process. Um, sometimes, at least. In the the timeline in the United States, late spring summer can be a much slower time, and so that can be a uh, um, a time when you can more likely get feedback. That might be too late for you, um, but just something to consider.
1: Yep, try keep trying. That's the answer, and hopefully that was helpful, uh, Katie and Michaela. And please send us your feedback. Or if you are listening now and you're thinking about applying, we do have quite a few listeners who are looking to go back, they're either technicians or undergraduates or just working in research in some capacity, but they want to go back for their PhD, write to us, let us know about how you're making this decision. How are you choosing the programs you're applying to? Uh, do you have advice for people? Maybe you recently chose a program and it was a really difficult decision. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at HelloPhD on Twitter, or you can email us, podcast at HelloPhD.com.
0: All right, Dan, do you have a word of the week for us? All right, Josh. The gross
1: clue last week was enlarged blood vessels may make these lesions respo- resemble the spindly legs of a crab.
0: What's your problem, Dan? I'm going to take the I know, science in the news you back start,
1: You should. <laughs> Cut me off, Josh. Well, this one actually came out of last week's Science in the News. You see the word crab right there. I know, I see it. Okay, so do you know any uh, Zodiac signs that are a crab, Josh? Uh, I I do. It's uh, cancer. And that is the correct answer this week from the Greek karkinos, which has three meanings in Greek, apparently. Crab, tumor, and the Zodiac constellation. I I could find a few descriptions of where the word cancer came to be applied. So so I don't know if, if there is a grant proposal in the world that does not include the word cancer. Like We are all studying cancer all the time. And so uh, I thought this was a really interesting route. The description, the oldest description of cancer, um, although they didn't use that word, was discovered in Egypt uh, and dates back to about 3000 BC. But the origin of the word is credited to Hippocrates from the Hippocratic Oath fame. And he termed it carcinos, or carcinoma, because uh, in the description, it says there were these finger-like projections that came from the tumor. Now, I don't know if those were blood vessels. Some, some descriptions say that they were blood vessels. Maybe this is angiogenesis happening to support this tumor. Or maybe it was just like a skin cancer lesion, and it had weird spindly legs on it. But anyway, it looked like a crab to him. And so now uh, carcinoma and cancer both come from this word carcanos.
0: I love some of this word origin stuff for these medical conditions where it really, really did come from the gross pathology where, hey, that looks like a crab. Let's call it crab disease. I'm throwing in a bonus for you, Josh. Okay, good. The
1: Greek word for swelling is onkos, which is where we get oncology and oncologists. There you go. Sorry. I just, I have to, I I find these threads and I follow them and they're all disgusting. So, uh... There's the origin of cancer, and let me give you the clue for next week. Though this mineral may glitter by firelight, don't mistake it for gold. Read it one more time. Though this mineral may glitter by firelight, don't mistake it for gold. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses, and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card.
0: All right, Dan. It's been a great show. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com slash We would appreciate the beer money. All right, Dan, let's get out of here and and research our predictions for the big game. I think it's going to be one of the teams. Orange Gatorade, all the way. You heard it here first, folks. Tide Pod challenge for the winner. (laughs) Or the loser, I don't know which. All right, we'll be back next episode with our Tide Pod tasting. We'll see you next week. All right, see you later. (laughs) We love the feedback. If you'd like to dry throat Tide Pod gets to you doesn't (laughs) it? (laughs)